This episode contains adult language and sexually explicit descriptions. Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Scheer. Dr. Spielvogel, this is my life, my only life, and I'm living it in the middle of a Jewish joke. I am the son in the Jewish joke. Only it ain't no joke. Please, who crippled us like this? Who made us so morbid and hysterical and weak? Why, why are they screaming still? Watch out, don't do it. Alex, no. And why, alone on my bed in New York, why am I still hopelessly beating my meat? Doctor, what do you call the sickness I have? Is this the Jewish suffering I used to hear so much about? Is this what has come down to me from the pogroms and the persecution? From the mockery and abuse bestowed by the Goyim over these 2,000 lovely years? Oh, my secrets, my shame, my palpitations, my flushes, my sweats. The way I respond to the simple vicissitudes of human life. Doctor, I can't stand any more being frightened like this over nothing. Bless me with manhood. Make me brave. Make me strong. Make me whole. Enough being a nice Jewish boy, publicly pleasing my parents while privately pulling my putts. Enough! The passage you just heard is unmistakably from Philip Roth's famous and infamous novel, Portnoy's Complaint. Published in early 1969, the book was an immediate sensation, selling hundreds of thousands of copies and rocketing to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, turning Roth into an overnight celebrity. Critics love the book, too. Reviewing Portnoy's complaint for the Times, book critic Christopher Lehman Howe judged the novel Roth's best work since Goodbye Columbus in a brilliantly vivid reading experience. But not everyone was so enthralled. Many Jewish readers, including rabbis and other leaders of the Jewish community, were scandalized by the book's unsparing satirical depictions of overbearing Jewish mothers and their horny, sex-obsessed sons. In this episode, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the publication of Portnoy's Complaint by telling the story of its origin and the major impact the book had on the life and career of Philip Roth, on the evolution of modern American literature, and on how Jews thought about their ethnicity and identity as they assimilated into the American mainstream. To understand how Roth came to write a book as wild and controversial as Portnoy's complaint, we have to go back in time one decade, to 1959, when the then 26-year-old aspiring writer published his first book, Goodbye Columbus, a collection that included the novella Goodbye Columbus about working-class Neil Klugman and his wealthy, self-centered girlfriend Brenda Potemkin and her family, as well as several short stories. Roth populated the book with the sorts of Jews he'd grown up around in the densely Jewish neighborhoods of Newark, New Jersey. In Roth's impolite depictions of his Jewish characters as less than fully wholesome, 
caused a stir. The whole collection Goodbye Columbus upset many, many, many people because they felt that the Jews portrayed in Goodbye Columbus and some of the other stories were not doing any favors to the Jews. This is Brett Ashley Kaplan, a professor of comparative literature and Jewish studies at the University of Illinois and author of the book Jewish Anxiety and the Novels of Philip Roth. They were crass in the case of Neil's family And in the case of Brenda's family, they were caricatured, rich Jews. We might now call Brenda a quintessential Jewish-American princess, to use a very problematic term. And so they had this very sort of distasteful representation. Rabbis trashed the book on their Sabbath sermons. Even the Anti-Defamation League spoke up, putting in a call to the New Yorker magazine, which had published one of the offending stories ahead of the book's publication. At Yeshiva University, which had invited Roth to speak, Orthodox Jewish students attacked him, asking angrily if Roth would write such anti-Semitic stories if he lived in Nazi Germany. Why exactly were Roth's critics so upset? Warren Hoffman, executive director of the Association for Jewish Studies and author of the book The Passing Game, Queering Jewish American Culture, notes that the first few decades after World War II were a period of transition for American Jewry. Jewish Americans are beginning to occupy a new place in the American landscape that even though anti-Semitism will continue decade after decade, it really is, I would say, the first time when Jews are beginning to be accepted as a minority in the U.S., when they're leaving the cities, going into the suburbs, and creating very robust Jewish communities out there. And so even though time had passed from the Holocaust, at the same time, it's this transitional moment for for Jewish Americans. And I think it was important, especially for leaders at the time, to put the best possible gloss on what it meant to be Jewish American. And so when, whether it's Goodbye Columbus or Portnoy's Complaint comes out, these books that are showing Jews in not the best light, it, it, it raised some hackles with some people. Roth didn't shrink from the controversy. He confronted it, writing essays about writing about Jews, and in some cases, responding directly to his critics. Even in responding to one very well-established rabbi, Rabbi Emanuel Rachman, uh, who wrote to him and criticized him, Roth was extremely clear that he had every right to, to write the kind of fiction that he wanted to write, and that what he was doing wasn't in any way an attack on Jews or wasn't in any way anti-Semitic, but was, he called it in one of the letters to Rachman, responsible Semitism. This is Josh Lambert, education director at the Yiddish Book Center and author of the book Unclean Lips, Obscenity, Jews, and American Culture. He believed that what he was doing was representing Jewish people in a way that was thoughtful about tensions and conflicts and, you know, human fallibility and all that sort of stuff. And that the idea that, you know, by showing a Jewish person who committed a crime or who wasn't acting in an ideal way, he was being anti-Semitic, a totally ridiculous idea. Not all Jews were up in arms about Goodbye Columbus. In fact, no less than the celebrated novelist Saul Bellow and the esteemed literary critic Irving Howe praised the book and hailed Roth as an important young voice in American literature. Better still, Goodbye Columbus won the National Book Award for Fiction in 1960, a remarkable feat for a young writer and one that established Roth as an artist to be taken seriously. 
Over the next few years, while teaching at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and working on his first novel, Letting Go, Roth mulled over the uproar Goodbye Columbus had caused. Meanwhile, he was struck by the kinds of stories his Jewish students were turning in. They all wrote the same stories, and they were all obsessed with their mothers and with, like, Oedipal dynamics and, you know, sort of family squabbles. And the stories were, you know, sort of all the same. By the mid-60s, the smothering Jewish mother had become a popular meme, as we'd call it today. Jewish mother jokes were a staple of best-selling stand-up comedy albums and featured prominently in movies and on television. So Roth was looking at all that stuff in the pop culture, and I think what he set out to do is suck all of it in, to sort of take all of that in and understand the energies and the the tensions and the intensities around Jewishness and Jewish families, Jewish masculinity that were circulating in the culture, and to put it back out as this really tightly constructed, sharply done satire that would make fun of all the kind of, and and sort of top in a way, like be a stronger, bigger version of the kind of whiny or stereotypical Jewish writing that he was seeing being done by lots and lots of writers out there in the culture. But the process wasn't easy. In fact, Roth was struggling, both with his writing and in his personal life. Letting Go, which came out in 1962, and Roth's next novel, When She Was Good, which came out in 1967, were commercial flops, and the critical response was mostly indifferent. Meanwhile, Roth's marriage to his first wife was falling apart. Roth felt artistically and personally adrift. Court costs from his divorce and alimony payments left him broke. He was thousands of dollars in debt to his editor for money he'd been loaned to pay for the intensive psychoanalysis he felt he needed to stay sane. Still, difficult as it was, Roth kept writing, intent on exploring in greater depth the psychological, emotional, and sexual dynamics at play in Jewish families, and especially between mothers and sons. He wrote a draft of a novel titled Portrait of the Artist as a Young Jewish Man, later retitled The Nice Jewish Boy, which featured a Jewish family called the Portnoys. He experimented with short stories about sex-obsessed Jewish men. The breakthrough that led to what became Portnoy's complaint had several components. First, as Lambert notes, by the mid-60s, the obscenity laws that had gotten comedian Lenny Bruce into so much trouble in the late 50s and early 60s were beginning to loosen. It's only in the late 50s that there's a huge, important, nationally discussed set of court cases around D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, and then it's only in 1961 that you have the same sort of set of conversations around Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, and it's only in 1966 when the Supreme Court decides a, a particular case that we re- that you really have the sense that a, an American literary publisher can publish books with any kind of words, with words like fucking shit and explicit descriptions of sex. This was liberating, especially for a writer like Roth, who had been peppering his experimental manuscripts with scatological and sexually explicit language. At the same time, Roth's immersion in psychoanalysis sparked an intense interest in Freud, whose writing about hysteria and the Oedipal complex and other neuroses Roth devoured. The experience inspired him to write a short story with the title, A Jewish Patient Begins His Analysis. And there it was, the setting and framework for the book that had been taking shape in Roth's mind and on the page in fits and starts for the past five years. 
In an interview with The New Yorker's David Remnick, Roth recalled that crafting the story as a therapy session set in an analyst's office gave him the psychological permission he needed to really go for broke without any rules or restraints or sense of decorum. Roth was ready, even eager, to return to and to satirize the Jewish milieu that had given Goodbye Columbus such a sharp, cutting edge. Maybe a partial answer to why he would sort of put himself from the frying pan back into the fire and decide again to enrage everyone is maybe part because they were enraged in the first place. And how fun would it be to poke even more fun at the kind of sanctity of Jewish American life, which, according to his critics, was supposed to be represented only in this kind of edifying, wonderfully assimilated, beautiful, seamless way, right? That he was going to say, you know, up yours to that kind of sanctification. I'm going to go right for the comedic caricature and like up it times 10. The result was a book that in its manic narration, sexual explicitness, and general obscenity was unlike anything that Roth had written before. It was unlike anything that anyone had written. In some ways, I'm not even sure calling it a novel is the right way to describe it. It's it's more like a performance. It's a, it's a monologue. It's stand-up comedy in some ways. It's a confessional. It's, it's very theatrical and dramatic. And while, of course, it's in a written novel form, it, it really goes beyond, I think, the sort of standard written word in ways that we might expect. The plot, such as it is, focused on one Alexander Portnoy, the book's deeply troubled but also insightful and hilarious narrator, spilling his guts to his analyst, Dr. Spielvogel, in a marathon rant-like riff about masturbation, about lusting after shikses, about guilt and self-loathing, and especially about his parents, Jack and Sophie. Sophie Portnoy is the typical smothering Jewish mother, Jack Portnoy works for an insurance agency, and his job is to go around, and as as Roth has Portnoy put it at one point, it's like collecting blood from a stone. He goes around to impoverished, mostly black neighborhoods that are contiguous to his neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey, and collects money from people for their insurance. And Jack famously suffers from terrible, terrible, terrible constipation. And as Roth at one point puts it, Jack might as well be working for the firm of worry, fear, and frustration. Portnoy's complaint was published by Random House on January 12, 1969. It sold nearly 400,000 copies within a month. Readers were stunned and mostly delighted by the book's outrageous humor and raw, manic energy. I think it was such a hit for so many different reasons. Stylistically, it's like nothing else. It just dashes off the page. You can you you have a real sense, I think, in your ear who this person is and all of his hysterical, narcissistic behavior. And the book is also just so damn laugh out loud funny. I mean, the sexual exploits that he unabashedly tells the reader, you know, 50 years later, I can't think about a piece of liver after having read Portnoy's complaint. Hoffman is referring, of course, to the infamous scenes in which the book's narrator, Alex Portnoy, describes masturbating with the aid of a piece of liver. In case you haven't read Portnoy's complaint, or if it's been a while, here you go. Liver masturbation scene number one. 
On an outing of our family association, I once cored an apple, saw to my astonishment and with the aid of my obsession what it looked like, and ran off into the woods to fall upon the orifice of the fruit, pretending that the cool and mealy hole was actually between the legs of that mythical being who always called me Big Boy when she pleaded for what no girl in all recorded history had ever had. "'Oh, shove it in me, Big Boy!' cried the cored apple that I banged silly on that picnic." "'Big boy, big boy, oh, give me all you've got!' begged the empty milk bottle that I kept hidden in our storage bin in the basement to drive wild after school with my vaseline upright. "'Come, big boy, come!' screamed the maddened piece of liver that, in my own insanity, I bought one afternoon at a butcher shop and, believe it or not, violated behind a billboard on the way to a bar mitzvah lesson. Liver masturbation scene number two. Where is this right mind on the afternoon I came home from school to find my mother out of the house and our refrigerator stocked with a big purplish piece of raw liver? I believe that I have already confessed to the piece of liver that I bought in a butcher shop and banged behind a billboard on the way to a bar mitzvah lesson. Well, I wish to make a clean breast of it, your holiness. That she... it wasn't my first piece. My first piece I had in the privacy of my own home, rolled around my cock in the bathroom at 3.30 and then had again on the end of a fork at 5.30, along with the other members of that poor innocent family of mine. So, now you know the worst thing I have ever done. I fucked my own family's dinner. These scenes, and many others in the book, are objectively hilarious, and what's more, played an important role in the book's success by presenting readers with something entirely new and formerly taboo. A major focus of the novel is masturbation, right, that Alexander Portnoy talks about masturbating, he talks about what he thinks about while he's masturbating, he gives you very concrete images of what it's like when he masturbates, and that's the kind of thing that I think many people had absolutely never heard someone talk about before. They had never seen represented in literature or film before. Roth's timing could not have been more perfect. The late 60s was, after all, the height of the sexual revolution, a time when how people thought about, talked about, and engaged in sex was rapidly changing. 1969 is this sort of cauldron of everything exciting happening at once. So the world is undergoing this transformation. And right at this moment, this book comes out that basically puts intimate details that are normally not seen on the printed page outside of the porn zone into the public realm. And people start talking about it. People start feeling that it's representing what their childhoods were like, but they could never even say, right? So it taps into this huge vein of repression and really cracks it open. The success of Portnoy's complaint radically changed Roth's life and career. He became famous, not just in literary circles, but among the public at large. Strangely, many people assume that Roth and his oversexed, liver-masturbating narrator were one and the same. On The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, best-selling pop novelist Jacqueline Suzanne quipped that she'd like to meet Roth, but she wouldn't want to shake his hand. Suddenly, Roth was a celebrity, a public figure, and everyone was talking about Portnoy's complaint. Portnoy's complaint also put Roth back in the crosshairs of the American Jewish establishment, raising alarms among many of the same rabbis and other Jewish leaders who had been so scandalized by Goodbye Columbus. 
While the late 60s may have generally been a period of countercultural experimentation and the overthrowing of cultural and social taboos, the mainstream Jewish establishment was conservative by nature and, as it had been a decade earlier, still highly alarmed by Roth's bare-fisted portrayal of American Jews. As a, another cultural reference point, this book comes out in 1969. Fiddler on the Roof opens in 1964 and is going to run into 1970. So you have this very, very different view of Jewish life, the Jews of the shtetl, the old home, look how nice everybody is with, you know, the, the daughters and the father. And then you have Portnoy. It's, it's like night and day. Roth wasn't surprised. After all, Portnoy's complaint was a deliberate provocation aimed directly at those conservative notions about how Jews ought to be portrayed. Roth was bothered, though, even incensed, when in 1972, in an essay titled Philip Roth Reconsidered, Irving Howe, who a decade earlier had praised Goodbye Columbus and hailed Roth as an important new talent, now trashed Portnoy's complaint and very publicly attacked Roth himself. The cruelest thing anyone can do with Portnoy's complaint is to read it twice, Howe wrote. An assemblage of gags strung onto the outcry of an analytic patient, the book thrives best on casual responses. It demands little more from the reader than a nightclub performer demands. In many ways, Howe's attacks seem personal. I mean, and it really is. It feels ad hominem. It feels mean-spirited. You know, he says Roth is a, you know, a person of thin culture something like that, which is seems like a fancy way of saying that Roth is a ignorant dumbass. You know, like it, it's it, it feels really, really like it's grasping at a way to unseat Roth from his position of prominence. Um, that's that's sort of how I how I personally see what what Howe's trying to do. He feels like, oh, my God, I've created a monster. I've given all this power to this writer and I don't trust him to use it in a responsible way. Roth was deeply troubled by Howe's critique. It was one thing to be pilloried by narrow-minded rabbis, but Howe was a sophisticated literary critic and one of the most respected public intellectuals of the time. For Howe to not only take issue with Portnoy's complaint, which was fair game, but also to call into question Roth's talent, his very essence as a literary artist, that was a step too far and an offense that Roth never forgot or forgave. Even more than a decade later, Roth was still fuming. In his novel The Anatomy Lesson, published in 1983, Roth revisits the episode in the character of Milton Appel, an obvious stand-in for Howe, who viciously attacks the artistic integrity of Roth's protagonist and narrator, Nathan Zuckerman. Zuckerman, a stand-in for Roth, gets his revenge by impersonating Appel and portraying him as a lurid pornographer. Since the publication of Portnoy's Complaint, the book has captured the attention and imagination of academic literary critics. Academic journals and books over the past several decades are filled with essays analyzing Roth's text from myriad critical perspectives. For example, in his book Unclean Lips, Lambert reads Portnoy's Complaint as continuing a history of allegorical uses of sex to talk about issues of Jewish continuity. Going back to Yiddish writers in the 19th century, writers have thought about, you know, what it means to be Jewish through the lens of, like, who a particular character is going to sleep with. And for me, what, what Roth does in Portnoy is take that whole representational tradition and say, what happens to it when you can use all the dirty words, right? So that, you know, diasporism becomes a kind of masturbation and Israel induces impotence 
and all these issues of continuity and you know Jewish identity come through the the sexuality of the of the book. Many feminist critics, meanwhile, have taken Roth to task for what they see as his misogynistic betrayal of women, not only in Portnoy's complaint, but throughout his writing. Kaplan, though, takes a different approach to the novel, arguing that Portnoy's central love interest, the sexually liberated and nearly illiterate Mary Jane Reed, whom Portnoy calls the monkey, embodies what feminist critics call consent culture. And consent culture is, in these uh, writers' um, understanding, a way to combat rape culture. Once we recognize that women can say yes and say yes with abandon, and that doesn't then immediately label us whores, then we sort of are writing our own script. We're taking power. We're saying it's okay to be sexual, that doesn't mean that there needs to be a huge branding and shamefulness with it. And this is very, I mean, it's an anachronistic reading in the sense that here I am in 2019, looking at this 50-year-old novel and trying to make of the monkey, especially this figure who does embody consent culture. But I do think that that reading makes sense in that she really does that. Hoffman, meanwhile, is interested in the book's portrayal of Jewish masculinity, reading Roth's portrayal of Alex Portnoy as queer, meaning not that Portnoy is gay, but that his sexual neuroses and behavior are outside the norm. Well, in in some ways, I would say that Portnoy sees himself, even though he doesn't use this term, as a queer character, because the whole book is him talking about hysteria, and wondering what is it that has made him and so many other men of his generation uh, hysterical. Originally, hysteria was understood as a strictly female malady. But in the 19th century, the term became attached to Jewish men, stereotyping them as weak and effeminate, the very antithesis of the Western ideal of masculinity. Hoffman reads Portnoy as reacting against the stereotype of the hysterical Jewish male to assert his identity as a red-blooded, sexually normative American man. And I think there's this really great line that happens towards the end of the book in which he explicitly sort of sums up to me what he's trying to achieve by having all this sex. And he says, what I'm saying, doctor, is that I don't seem to stick my dick up these girls as much as I stick it up their backgrounds, as though through fucking I will discover America. To me, that sort of encapsulates him trying to say, I'm trying to to assert my male Jewish American personality through having heterosexual sex. And he's has this compulsion. He's he's obsessed with having sex all the time as if he continually needs to to convince us, convince us, the reader, and Dr. Spielvogel, the the therapist, that he is a real man, even though he's Jewish, that that Jewish American men are as masculine and butch and tough as, as everybody else and trying to push away that hysterical, effeminate stereotype that has dogged Jews for for decades. It's worth noting along these lines that Portnoy only has sex with non-Jewish women, or shikses, as he calls them. The one time he tries to have sex with a Jewish woman when he assaults a female army officer in Israel, not only does she physically overpower him, but for the first time in a novel full of sex, Portnoy can't get it up. 
she starts laughing at him for being impotent. And there's something very pregnant about that moment in that he, here he is in Israel and and he's sort of queered in this moment that he, he can't seem to function in the way that a heterosexual man should. Philip Roth died on May 22nd, 2018 in Manhattan. In the 49 years since publishing Portnoy's Complaint, Roth wrote more than 30 novels as well as several works of nonfiction and criticism, several of which won major literary prizes. Many of those books surpassed Portnoy in terms of depth, stylistic and thematic complexity, and in most every other way. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, Roth's so-called American Trilogy, including the novels American Pastoral, I Married a Communist, and The Human Stain, vaulted him to an even higher level of acclaim and cemented his status as one of America's greatest novelists. So where does that leave Portnoy's complaint today? Well, and that's a great question. You know, it's it's very hard to say what that legacy is because I think that it's such a diverse legacy. You know, I hear people say when I talk about Portnoy's complaint that they can't read it. They just they just find it so dated and it's sort of impossible. And then you hear other people say it's so funny. It's so satirically gets it just right. It's hilarious. I couldn't put it down. You know, so I don't think there's one kind of legacy. I think that Portnoy's Complaint will be understood as a novel that significantly transformed American literature. I think for the most part, the novel has aged pretty well. I think it's that it comes from the fact that whenever I pick it up, there are still multiple episodes and moments in the book where I laugh out loud. I think there's just such rich humor in it. I feel like it still works. I, th- I think that it's kind of an amazing literary performance in, you know, when you think about creating that sense of orality, like making it feel like a monologue and the way that it represents the rise of stand-up comedy and different kinds of, you know, oral forms of storytelling in America. And as a kind of condensed compendium of major issues in American Jewish life, it's astonishing. That does it for this episode of Adventures in Jewish Studies. The opening scene and the liver masturbation scenes were performed by Liam Castellan. The executive producer of the podcast is Warren Hoffman. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization and features an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information on what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish studies scholar to your community. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Shearer.